0: We are in Revelation chapter 11, and as we started the book of Revelation, we find out that Revelation is about obedience. It's about getting right with God. It's about knowing and who's holy and who is not. He is holy, we are not. And keeping that in perspective is maybe one of the hardest things on obedience, but we walk together. In our, the best we know how, walking back to the Lord. um, A lot of times that's the the fence illustration where you got one leg into the world and one leg into um, knowing God. And it's hard to deal with because we always want to stray away. We always want to jump onto the other side because it seems like the grass is a little bit greener over there. But God calls us back to his presence and redeems us that way. So obedience to the Lord is to walk and step with the Lord, to be in harmony with the Lord's melody. We let him have the glory, and we can supplement that glory. That's one of the neat things about music. You let the melody line shine through, but you, when you bring the harmony into it, it really blossoms that melody and and lets it uh, stand out a little bit more. And that's what we can do with our Heavenly Father. It's our actions lining up with our faith in God. That's obedience. Our actions lining up with our faith in God. And repentance is to turn from our selfish nature and to make amends for our wrong actions. Repentance, it cleanses. It brings us in step with the Lord. And it is a great place to start in obedience because repentance requires action. It requires humility. And when we humble ourselves before the Lord, what does he promise to do to us? He promises to lift us up, doesn't he? And that is pretty amazing. So our main point today is the Lord wants us to repent of our selfish lifestyle and walk in faithful obedience with Him according to His will and purpose. Excuse me. This morning we we uh, sang about God's faithfulness. You ever think about God and you think of some of His characteristics? He is unchanging. He cannot change. And so that's one reason why we were cast out of the garden in the first place, because God could change us to just be, oh, you're you're sinless again, but that would change his character, and God's character doesn't change. And so he had to bring us a way back to repentance that eventually came through him. And so as God's unchanging character, you think about God's faithfulness. No matter how far we stray away from God, He will always be faithful, always be there for us, for you, for me, for everyone. You cannot run away from God so far that he can't reach you. It is our will that we surrender to him. And when we surrender that free will to him, God starts doing mighty things in our lives, starts revealing things, um, his ways. And that's what we have here, a little bit of a revealing. In Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, he tells John to go get the measuring stick. At least he said didn't say the willow stick, right? It's just the measuring stick. But in, in some senses, it's, it's kind of like I'm getting ready for the willow stick, right? <laughs> See if you measure up, get the plumb line out kind of thing. So it says, it says, Then I was given a measuring stick, and I was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the number of worshipers. Do not measure the outer court, for it has been turned over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will be clothed in burlap and will prophesy during those 1,260 days. So again, we see a message of repentance. And as our first point there in the bulletin, it says, "Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near." We have seen many events taking place in chapters five through 10. And we see the first six seals open, if you look at it from a stack point of view, as I've been kind of going through, but I don't and then the seven appears. At the same time, and I think as the end of chapter 11 does, in my opinion. And we see that the first six trumpets have sounded. And then we have this pause in chapter 8 for a big announcement. And I think that's kind of where we see this, this end of the second terror. And he says, look, the third terror is not far behind. We have this accounting in a sense, of Daniel. When we get to Daniel chapter 9, which we'll talk about just briefly here, but it it talks about sets of seven as well. And we have the last set of seven broken into two. So we have three and a half years, three and a half years. This is kind of where I stick that three and a half years mark as well. So it all culminates and names dates and things is very very hard and difficult to do in revelation. So, I also believe that God is coming back once. I believe that when we see a picture of this in Revelation chapter 7 as we talked about before, verses 9 through 17, I see it also the same account in Revelation chapter 11 verses 15 through 19 I see that as a different view of the same thing and I also see the view in 14 14 as Jesus he comes back again so it is looking at it's kind of like looking at a map of America you ever get onto your uh, radar map when it's raining and you want to see the big storm how big is the storm Okay, so you look at the map of America, is it a big storm, little storm, where are we at? Okay, it's a little bit more localized, so now I'll zoom in to the map of Illinois, and I see this map of Illinois, and I can see where that front line's gonna come, and here in Peoria, the, the front is usually broken up by the river, and it will usually split right about at Bellevue, it usually goes one side or the other, and, and if it doesn't split, Bellevue's in for some bad weather. Um, we've had that happen once where we've gone down to the basement, right? Uh, that storm just kept coming right through, and that was the, the Washington uh, tornado, okay? And so if you look at some of these things, if you want to get even more specific, then we look at Revelation chapter 14, and that is looking at Peoria County. Is that what's the storm going to do? Okay, and so that's how I look at these, these um, chapters in Revelation. Now, to to say we get to the end and say, well, Shane, it just it all worked out linear. It was this one, and then this one, and this one, and this one, and this one. I'm, I'll eat crow and say, yep, you're right. That's how it happened. It could be very much linear. That's how I was taught growing up. But there is a few things that I I look and I see clues. And it really looks like these are the same things, one right over another, in my opinion, as I've studied this. So as we get going along, we see that Christ comes back, he reveals himself, and then he pours out his wrath. I believe we're all going to be, as Christians, up in heaven when God's wrath comes on the earth. So when does that happen? We're probably up for debate on that one, okay? But as God comes down to deliver his wrath, Christians, believers, will not be here. That is really important. And so he pours out his wrath on the earth. Well, why, pastor? Why does he pour out his wrath? I thought God was a loving God. And a loving God pouring out his wrath on the earth? That doesn't make sense to me well the bottom line of that is it's because of sin it's because of sin has corrupted this earth and god is going to make it right and so he's going to have um, a winnowing effect where he's going to harvest his ones that are spiritually holy and then he is going to um, eradicate sin and anything that's been corrupted by sin so does god love us and desire to have a relationship with us absolutely absolutely however god has a timeline for sin and once that time is up we should have had made the choice to follow god's path by not choosing we have made the choice to follow our sinful nature. And then we have chosen God's wrath. Okay, do you see how that works out? It is our choice whether we're going to heaven or hell. Why would God create hell? Why would God send anybody to hell? That's, that's the big question that I get asked a lot. Why would anybody send anybody to hell? Well, God doesn't send anybody to hell. It is our choice. We choose, by not choosing God, we choose to go to hell. We choose to be 100% separated from God, and that in itself is hell, because there's nothing to stop Satan and his demons from tormenting us, right? It will not go with anyone who goes down there in that path. So we've come to the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, and this is God's last call to repentance before he destroys everyone who doesn't believe in him and chooses not to follow the Lord. We have many references to other parts of the Bible in these first six verses. I'm going to hint at some of them, or I'm going to tell you what they are. I put some of them in the bulletin there and um, go on from there, but I'm not going to read all of Ezekiel 40 through 47. Okay, so I'll do my best to point them out. So the measuring rod for the temple, we see that in Ezekiel 40 through 47. You see, the the Israelites, they lost how to build the temple. They didn't know how to do it. And so they lost the temple. It was gone. It was destroyed. And God had to give them plans to build it back up again. And so he lays it out for Ezekiel. One of the big differences, though, is he tells John only to measure the inner court and he it says where God's where God's people will come and dwell among his people and they will repent and turn back to him if not he will leave the temple because and you see this in Ezekiel the picture of God coming when they are are obedient he comes and dwells with them when they're not it actually says in there that God leaves the temple And they can feel the presence of God leaving, and then they repent, and he comes back. And he comes back again, and it happens at least once. It might happen more than once. And I think there's something that's supernatural that makes him come back to return, and that's when we see Jesus Christ, I believe, come to the earth. So, John is... is told only to measure the inner court, and the outer court will be turned over to the nations. In the King James, it may say the Gentiles. Okay, well, that's who we are. We're turning over to the Gentiles? What's that mean? It means in this case, in this particular case, it means the unbelievers. It means God's going to take those that follow him and trust him, put Jesus, in a sense what we call Jesus, into our hearts, that's the inner court. The outer court is those that are like, hey, I go to church. I, I enjoy a good church service. I enjoy getting pumped up on Sunday morning. And then we go about our lifestyle and everybody else that would, would fall in that. Basically, those who have not surrendered their will to the Lord. And That's hard and it's difficult. It's difficult to surrender to the Lord. I am here to tell you, I am very arrogant when it comes to me and the Lord's conversation sometimes. And I know what I'm supposed to ask for repentance in, and I don't want to. Because I'm stubborn. And when I do, I find it going right with me. I feel the peace that passes understanding. I understand that God knows he has a plan for me, and I can have the joy of the Holy Spirit. And when I walk into that, well, we'll get into the application of that in a little bit here. So, those in the outer court, they don't get to go to heaven because of their arrogance. We see this in verse 10. They gloat and they celebrate the death of the two prophets, but we're not quite there yet. We have the 42 months, three and a half years, and the 1,260 days. This is all the same measurement. This is all the same as they walk through The first of the trampling of the court is predicted by Jesus in Luke chapter 21 verse 24. He says the outer courts will be trampled by the Gentiles and when the period of the Gentiles comes to an end and maybe that's when the the quota of Gentiles is filled up so God has a full house to his wedding. That could be one way to look at it. It could be Um, also looked at it as the Gentiles have their way um, in their sinful way and the period of grace has ended and then God's returned uh, to make things right. This is also a reference to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel sets up a period of sets of sevens where there's 70 sets of sevens and the final set, Of seven is the most important and they split this into two so it's three and a half years and three and a half years and I believe this is kind of the middle point where we see the two witnesses come down so we have 42 months of them preaching and then we have three and a half years of God's wrath I I believe that the tribulation is going to happen um, and we're going to be called up after three and a half years, regardless of how you look at all, all the doom and gloom in here. That's where I'm at. I'm a mid-trib guy, and I think I can point to that pretty, pretty clearly here. And I see that, especially if you look at these three accounts in a stacked view of a big picture, a little bit closer, a little bit closer. Okay? And so then we also see that Christ warns us of this in Daniel chapter nine verse twenty-seven. It says in in twenty-seven it says um, Daniel twenty-seven says at the climax to all his terrible to all his terrible deeds he will this is talking about the Antichrist in a sense he will set up a sacrilegious object and that causes desecration until the fate decreed for his defiler, is finally poured out on him. Christ warns us of this in Matthew 24, 15. It says, the day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about, the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. And he says, reader, pay attention. We need to pay attention. When is that going to happen? Well, I think it's going to happen during the two witnesses. I think he's going to destroy the two witnesses and either their death on the altar is going to be the sacrilegious thing because we're forsaking the gospel, what they represent, and then we are gloating it because we're not going to let them be buried for the three and a half days that they're still on the earth, or there's going to be the sacrilegious, um, something horrible is going to defile the, the altar. One of the two, it's not going to be good. But the Lord wants us to repent of our selfish lifestyle and walk in faithful obedience with him according to his will and purpose. Now, pastor, how long are you going to talk about this repentance thing? Because you've been on it for quite a while. And, uh, well, I'm only going with what the Lord says in his word, right? And if he's going to stick on it for a while, I'm going to stick on it for a while too. But have hope because God does come back and Jesus does become the conquering king and you start seeing him calling his people out and things finality starting to happen but his people are rescued from that so just bear with me for a few more weeks and we'll get to that point soon let's continue on in Revelation chapter 11 verses 4 through 6 it says these two prophets were the Two olive trees and the two lampstands stand before the Lord of all the heaven. If anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouth and consumes their enemies. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. They have power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall for For as long as the prof, as they prophesy. They have the power to turn the rivers and oceans of blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as as they wish. The two witnesses, who are they? Where do they come from? What do they look like? Well, I will give you my best um, overview. It's not a best guess because I think scripturally wise, there's answers to this, um, just not necessarily clear ones, okay? I believe they're gonna be two prophets, whether they're brand new and they look like these examples, or they are actually prophets coming down from heaven, and they are those representatives. I don't necessarily know, really, I de- don't necessarily know if that matters. They're gonna preach the gospel and they're gonna call to repentance. That's one thing we're gonna see for sure that happens in here. So who are these two witnesses? There there are clear references to Zerubbabel, which means the statesmen who rebuilt the temple. Okay, Zerubbabel is back in Zechariah. We see a clear reference to him and to Jeshua. And Jeshua in Zechariah chapter 3 points to Christ, right? I don't think Christ is going to come back as to the witnesses, but I think they're going to be representatives of Christ. Okay, The high. so we have the high priest who is Christ, and we have the statesman in a sense who is Christ as well when he comes back finally, but we have somebody that's going to maybe represent the state and the church in their proper way, okay? Another pair would be Elijah and Moses. This is one that's very traditional to go along with, and I don't see anything wrong with them. I think they will definitely be prophets that have the same power and authority as Elijah and Moses, or they will be Elijah and Moses. I I don't know that for sure, though, because it doesn't say it clear, because that's how Revelation is. (laughs) But Elijah called down fire and withheld rain, right? That is a definite, clear description, Elijah. And Moses turned the oceans and rivers to blood and every kind of plague. But what do Elijah and Moses represent as well? They represent the law and the prophets okay they represent the law and the prophets and so not only do these have these miracles that go on and things but they also have the authority of God's Word and the Holy Spirit okay that's where we go with that as well the two witnesses are a clear reference to Zechariah chapter 4 okay what do we see What do we see in the book of Zechariah? God is calling his people back to, guess what? Repentance. I know, it's crazy. He does that a lot, by the way. He does that to me a lot in my life as well, and uh, it's a good thing because he's a God who is loving. He is faithful. He's a faithful God. That's who you are. That's what we're saying about this morning. Isn't that amazing? Just blows my mind that no matter how much I wander away and stray across to that fence and into that green grass, that he lifts me up and pulls me out and sets my feet upon the rock and gives me a clear place to rest. Praise God. Do you think maybe God is big on repentance? He is. Isn't that, doesn't that give you hope? Aren't you excited that God is willing to take us back when we are the most wandering sheep ever. I thought sheep were dumb until I started looking at my life. I'm like, wow, you're really stupid, Shane. Uh, and that's, that's fine, because that's where I, I don't need to think of myself better than I ought. None of us do, do we? Because when we start thinking of ourselves as, look, I've arrived, that's when we fall on our face And not humbly until God, until the process we're starting to get back up again, then we want to stay down there because God rescues us from our own pride. So now we have two prophets, two lampstands, two olive tree, and we know the number two is symbolic of two different ideas. Okay, so in in this particular one, we have the inner court and the outer court. God has called us to the inner court to have a personal relationship with him. And those in the outer court are not going to make it. So God's way is salvation in the the inner court. And man's way, anyway, we like to look at these two witnesses to the truth. They agree that it's God's way is true. God's way is true. The law and the prophets both point to the truth that we have in Christ. The state and the church. This is Zechariah chapter 4. You look at Zechariah chapter 4 and they both point to a way that is right. We have the physical and the spiritual do we know that we live in a broken world? I think if you do a little bit of examining and you turn on any news, whether it's conservative news, liberal news, it's all doom and gloom. They, that's, what they, that's how they get the ratings, which is unfortunate. Um, but we see physically that the world is broken and we know spiritually in our own hearts that there's something more than us. Everything points to Christ Jesus being justified in his actions to come with his wrath. And that's a little scary. And I'm not scared of the earthquakes. I'm not scared of the hail and the fire that comes along with it. I'm scared of his holy presence that comes in the third terror. And it took me all week to figure that out. Like, what is the deal here? You know, we're praising God for the third terror. What is the deal? It's his holiness. God's holiness can't be in the presence of wickedness, can't be in the presence of sin at all. We are in trouble if we're still on the earth when that happens. When God opens up and reveals his altar, we better be ready. So another thing I found out interesting as I was studying Zechariah. If you want to see another viewpoint of Revelation 11 through 13 and 17 through 19, it's in Zechariah. It's there. I remember when we studied it in um, foundations two, three years ago, it was one of the very first books that we did. I think we did Hebrews. And then the next one was some of the minor prophets. One of them was Zechariah. And I'm like, this is Revelation. And Craig's like, yeah, I know. And I'm like, Whoa! <laughs> you know it—it's right there. It, it's not the first time that this has been prophesied. Zechariah—the um, whole book is a book of prophecy. So, as we—if you want to know more about Revelation, read Zechariah. Well, what part, Pastor? Well, I would recommend all of it because it's—it's it's all it comes there. It's all a message of repentance where. Um, most of Revelation's on, on repentance, but it's all on obedience. Okay? We have to obey God in His grace that He is faithful, that He will accept us. And when we walk in that grace and we walk in that obedience, then it will go well with us. Which, guess what? Is the whole theme of the whole Bible. <laughs> You know? Because how did, it, how did we get out of it? Adam and Eve, they did their own thing. And they walked out of grace. And that's scary. And we know that God wants us to repent of our selfish lifestyle, walking in faithful obedience with Him according to His will and purpose. One of His will and purpose things is to walk together. Right? That's why we do church. God designed it that way. We do church together. We walk together so we don't stumble and fall, so that we, it's harder to wander away. Let's finish up. Revelation chapter 11, 7 through 14, reads like this. It says, when they complete their testimony, the beast comes out of the bottomless pit and will declare war against them, and he will conquer them and kill them, and their bodies will lie in the main street in of Jerusalem, the city that is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, the, the city where the Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days all the peoples, tribes, languages, nations will stare at their bodies. No one will be allowed to bury them. All the people who belong to this world will gloat over them and will give presents to each other to celebrate the death of the two prophets who had tormented them. But after the three and a half days, God breathed life into them, and they stood up. Terror struck all who were staring at them, and then a loud voice from heaven called to the two prophets, Come up here. And they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. At the same time, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city. Seven thousand people died in that earthquake, and everyone else was terrified and gave glory to God in heaven. The earth, or the second terror is past, but look, the third terror is coming quickly. We see a picture of the beast. This is the first mention of the beast in Revelation. I believe chapters 11 through 13 and 17 through 19, they tell the story about this time in more detail. I think it's more of a zoomed-in look. The glimpse we get at this time is that the beast kills God's two prophets. He kind of reveals himself that he is the power of this world, and he is allowed to have authority over these Two witnesses for three and a half days. And then God intervenes. And he leaves them to rot on the streets. And I don't, you know, it's been depicted in movies that they weren't, and nobody was allowed to touch them, but I, I think it was over the authority of this figure of the world to say, See, look what I can do. I am stronger than them. I am better than them. I am, put your faith in me. And that's evil. Right? And this is the ultimate task of shaming an enemy to leave him out on, in a sense, the battlefield and not bury him. But after three and a half days, the Lord would not have it anymore. He says, These are my representatives. And he breathes life in them and he calls them up to heaven. And I think this is a reference, again, to. Elijah, and Enoch. He walked with God, and there was no more. So those are another possibility of who that could be. This is when the people understand they're in trouble. He just declared authority over these guys. Now they're up to be with the Lord. We heard the voice. We are in trouble. They hear the voice of the Lord, and the Lord reacts to their arrogance, to their gloating, to their celebrating of the two prophets by sending in a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city. 7,000 people died in the earthquake, and everyone else was terrified and gave glory to God and all of the heaven. That's verse 13. 7,000. Again, we see seven. That's sanctification. 7,000 would be the perfect sanctification. It is finished, my wrath is is about to fall, the earth will be sanctified. That's the number. I believe that's what that represents. Let this be a reminder that we should turn to the Lord in repentance early and often. Right? How often? Very often. How early? Very early. What do I mean by that? Well, As soon as you sin, one of the hardest things to do is ask for repentance. You know what you did was wrong, and maybe you even enjoy the feeling of the wrong that you just did. But if you know it's wrong, the faster you can turn back to the Lord, the more conviction it's going to put on your heart, and it'll be harder to do next time. I know it's wrong to take this drink. I know it's wrong to look at this thing on the internet. I know it's wrong to gloat, to be arrogant. I know it's wrong. I did it anyway. Lord, forgive me. And then work on the sincerity of that repentance. So why do we repent? We repent to get right with God. God is able to speak clearer when we are clean before our Lord, it's like clearing out the earwax, right? So if you want God to work in your life and you want to be able to hear God better, we want to clear out the earwax, right? And so if you repent of our sin, it's getting that off the docket and working with the Lord and that he can can be there and be more clear in your ear. He is able to use us in a bigger capacity when we walk in obedience. There's nothing for the enemy's arrows to hit because our armor is strong. We don't allow a chink to get into our our armor, do we? We confess it, get the arrow out, clean it with salve, and get on our way so we're ready to go. So we confess Quickly, we repent often because like we see in verse 13, everyone else was terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. Everyone, everyone understood that God is awesome and they are not. Another thing is we can be more battle ready with a clean heart and a pure mind. Do we still sin? Yeah, but when we do, we rebuke it right there, right? If you ever do battle with the enemy, if you ever go up against Satan or his demons, you better go up with a clean heart and a pure mind because if you don't, he will take that and use it to his advantage and he will destroy you more than you can destroy him, okay? That's another reason. God's not going to use you to go up against Satan and his minions if your heart is not in the right place to do that. And that in itself can be scary Um, when you're going up without not all the tools in your toolbox, right? The Lord wants us to repent of our selfish lifestyle and walk in faithful obedience with him according to his will and purpose. Verse 15 says, Then the said." seventh angel blew his trumpet and there was a loud voice voices shouting in heaven the world has now become the kingdom of our lord and of his christ and he will reign forever and ever the 24 elders sitting on the thrones before god fell with their faces to the ground and worshiped him and they said give thanks to you god lord give thanks to you lord god the almighty the one who is and who always was for now you have "'assumed your great power and have begun to reign. "'The nation's filled with wrath, "'but now the time of your wrath has come. "'It is time to judge the dead "'and reward your servants, the prophets, "'as well as your holy people, "'and all who fear your name, "'from the least to the greatest. "'It is time to destroy all who cause destruction on the earth. "'Then in heaven the temple of God was opened, And the Ark of His Covenant could be seen inside the temple. Lightning flashed, thunder crashed, and roared, and there was an earthquake and a terrible hailstorm, which is very, very similar to Revelation chapter 7. It's almost identical in what they say, what happens, and things. And this is one of the things that leads me to believe that this is a zoomed-in picture of the same event. Like I said, I could be wrong. The third terror is the Lord Almighty, the Holy One of Israel, the Holy One of the world. God in His holiness reveals Himself to all the earth. The Holy God in the presence of the one of the wickedest times ever recorded. God finally says, enough. Jesus declares His reign on the earth. Your time is up. The time for repentance is past. God is here to clean house. It is time to judge the dead. It is time to destroy all who have caused destruction. It is time to reveal the holy Lord to the earth. In verse nineteen, and then in heaven, the the temple of God was opened, and the ark of His covenant could be seen inside the temple. The light, lightning flashed, thunder crashed, and roared, and there was an earthquake and all the terrible hailstorm, just like God said would happen at the final trumpet. Right? This is the end of the final trumpet. This is all coming to culmination. God is coming back to make it right. White Rose, God is giving us a chance to repent of our sins and turn to him now. We have a chance now. do that. We practice this through repentance. Do you find yourself back in the same pattern of of sinning? Then I challenge you to do this. Study your Bible. Get in God's word. Rebuke it right away with his word. There is nothing more powerful than than praying God's word. Absolutely nothing more powerful in this world than praying God's word back to him. It is unbelievable. Well, pastor, the Bible is confusing. And I'm not a night person, or I can't come when when you guys have small groups. I'm busy on those nights. But I do have Tuesday afternoons open. Well, guess what? So does your pastor. If you want to do a Bible study during the day, am I going to ever be like, no, I'm not doing the Bible. <laughs> no, I will I will study the Bible with you. If you want to come get a group of two or three with you, we will study the Bible, okay? We'll get back to the basics if that's where you want to go. If you want to go deeper, then I'll let you lead it this time, right? And I will be there with you, challenge you, and we will go together. That's what it means to have her, to to hash out, um, to rub leather until it's worn all the way through. That's what, what it means to have Kavanaugh. That's what Bill Allison would say. So we, I challenge you, if you, have a, if you want to do something like that, and if you have a time during the day, I'd be happy. Do you get two or three together, and we'll do that, okay?